turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 25 as we continue working our way through this book of Genesis. Uh, we've come into that part of the book that's referred to as the, the, the narrative of the patriarchs. Uh, it began right at the end of chapter 11 and continues all the way through to the end of the book in chapter 50. This morning we're in chapter 25, which is an end in itself. We come to the end of Abraham's narrative. Abraham, who has not only been central in this narrative, but is central in the history of redemption. Uh, by the time we get to the Gospels, which is 2,000 years after the time of Abraham, the, uh, the Israelites, the, the Jews in the Gospel accounts are referring to themselves as children or sons of Abraham. Uh, Paul is going to help us understand who we are in Christ by explaining to us that by faith, we are children of Abraham. Abraham, a central figure, and yet, despite the fact that he is, is at the heart of that covenant, God made covenant with Abraham and his offspring, even Abraham is subject to death. And so this morning as we come to the text, we're going to see the end of Abraham's life. And, and from a narrative perspective, he passes from the scene. Uh, he plays no significant role in the rest of the book, except the role that he has played in his life. And so uh, as we read here in a moment, there are uh, three key themes that I want you to, to pay attention to, to listen for. Uh, death, division, and discord. It's going to be a really happy sermon today. Now, there's good news in the midst of death and division and discord, but there's bad news as well. And we see all of these things in the text. Death, as we see the death of Abraham and even the death of Ishmael mentioned here in the text. Division, as we see Abraham sending all of his children away except for Isaac, to whom he gives everything. A division between his children. A division, as we see even Ishmael said to live over and against all of his brothers. Division is, is prophesied with respect to these two children in Rebekah's womb, Jacob and Esau. We see a division being made. It's a division we were told about in Genesis 3.15 and has been working itself out ever since Genesis 4, and it continues in these verses. Discord, as there are not only two peoples in the world, but these two peoples are at war with one another in all of history. Who are those peoples? To which of them do you belong? What does it look like to engage in that warfare. These are the things we're going to consider today as we open up to Genesis 25. I'm going to pray, and then we'll read verses 1 through 28. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we rejoice to be your people. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how it is that you reveal yourself, your character, the work that you have done and are doing and will do in the world. Father, we thank you that in the great division of peoples, we have belonged to you. You have called us to yourself. Father, we acknowledge that it's not because of our beauty, our power, our wealth. There's nothing in us deserving of your love and to be called your people. But you have nonetheless loved us. And so we rejoice. And even, even in our weakness, we come this morning acknowledging that if it were not for your Holy Spirit, we would not even understand the words that we read. And so this morning, accomplish all that you have purposed in the hearts and minds of everyone present. If there are those among us, Father, who are dead in their trespasses and sins, would you raise them up to new life even now? 
uh, and for your people, those who know you and are trusting in Christ, encourage us, strengthen us, build us up, admonish us, Father, where we need to be admonished. We pray that your word would, would accomplish all of these things this morning. We know it can, and we know that it will, that it is powerful to do these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's word, Genesis chapter 25, beginning in verse 1. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimron, Jokshan, Midan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuah. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dadon. The sons of Dadon were Asherim, Letushim, Laumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Abdil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tema, Jetur, Nafish, and Kedemah. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abram, Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
well, again, these three things, death, division, and discord. Death, the servant of God. Death, the servant of God. Division, the children of God. Division, the children of God. And discord, the enmity of God. Discord, the enmity of God. Death, the servant of God. I, I want to consider for a moment particularly the death of Abraham in this morning's text. Death comes in God's timing and manner. For Abraham, it is while he is at peace and in an old age. God said that this is how Abraham would end. If you flip back a few pages to chapter 15 and verse 15, God told Abraham, you will die at peace in a good old age. You see, God is Lord even over death. It's not just that God was able to look through the halls of time to the future and to see Abraham's death and to perceive that it would be a peaceful death, that it would come in his old age. But in fact, God determined for Abraham that he would die in peace. He promised this to Abraham, that he would die in a good old age. You see, even death is nothing but the servant of God. He is Lord even over death. Death takes whom God wills, when God wills, how God wills, in order to serve God's purposes as the execution of justice or the translation of the saints into glory. We need to pause for a moment. Even to say the word death uh, requires some kind of explanation. You see, from the world's perspective, there is only one kind of death. And that's the death that we suffer at the end of our physical life. But you see, Scripture speaks of death in three different ways. All died in Adam. Adam, the first man who was called to perfect obedience and, and eternal life was held out to him if he would obey. But if he disobeyed, the penalty was death. And of course, famously, Adam and Eve disobeyed. And in Adam's disobedience, death came to all men. Paul talks about this in Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. This is why we die, brothers and sisters, is because of Adam's sin. But it's not only our physical death that comes as a result of that sin. What Adam did, he did on our behalf. He did as our representative. What he reaps, we reap. And so, Adam, you'll remember the threat was, on that day you shall surely die, and spiritually he did. So that Paul is speaking the truth when he says in Ephesians chapter 2, that all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. We are, brothers and sisters, spiritually speaking, stillborn. Dead in our trespasses and sins. And the truth of that death is revealed in the physical death that follows. Whether we die in infancy or we die in a good old age, that physical death that comes is nothing but the outworking and the fruit of that spiritual death that's true of us. So we are, are born spiritually dead. Physically, we die. But there is one more death in the universe. This death we can actually escape. This death is not required of us. 
If only we will believe and trust in Jesus Christ. John in Revelation twice refers to this as the second death. And he says of the second death, those who trust in Christ will not see the second death. Death has no power over them. And so as we come to the text this morning, we see, we see Abraham dying in a good old age and at peace. Now, all of these, these things that are true of death come home to roost for us in these verses. We must recognize that God is the Lord of death, that it serves His purposes. It doesn't make death a good thing. Death is not a good thing. Death is the judgment of God against sin. And we do not celebrate death. We don't rejoice in death or embrace it gladly. But, brothers and sisters, we need not fear it if we are trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for our salvation. You see, there are two ways that we can face death with Christ or without Christ. Abraham dies at peace. And the the question that that has to be asked is in what sense at peace? Merely at peace with the people around him? At peace with himself, he's got a clear conscience? At peace with his family, which has not always had peace? If we were to continue this morning and had the ability and the time available to us to read all of the rest of Scripture we would find that the peace that Abraham dies in, the peace that he enjoys, ultimately, above all other kinds of peace, is a peace with God because of the promises that God has made to him. Listen, as as we ourselves anticipate death, I know it's not a happy thought. Most of us, both explicitly and implicitly, would just as soon not think about it. We put it off. We, uh, we do our best to forget that it's coming. We act surprised when suddenly it turns out it's here. And yet it is appointed unto man once to die. Scripture has told us that unless Christ comes back in our lifetime, every single person in this room will one day enter the grave. And there are two ways to meet that end, with Christ and without Him. And listen, if we meet the end, if we come to death with Christ, trusting in Him alone for our salvation, believing Christ, when He has said to us that we were enemies of God, deserving judgment, deserving death, but that He has removed that judgment from us by taking it on Himself in our place, our substitute, satisfying the perfect justice of God, if we will believe Him that He is the Son of God and He has done these things, then when we come to death, death as the servant of God has only one role, one task, one responsibility to the Christian, and that is to usher you into the presence of Christ. Death has no power over the Christian to do anything but to show us the face of our Savior. Jesus says in Matthew 22, As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac 
and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Abraham, even as Christ speaks, his body is dead in a cave near Mamre together with his wife Sarah, but his soul is with Christ. And look at what Christ says in John 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Here he's talking about the second death. The Pharisees don't understand this, though, and the, the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. I.e., in other words, Abraham, what, no one ever alive more righteous than Abraham is the implication, and he died. The prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, He saw it and was glad. Abraham yet lives. The Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus Christ is the very Son of God. And if we will trust in Him, if we will believe Him when He tells us that He is the Son of God, if we will believe Him when He tells us that He removes our sin, He removes the judgment against us, a just judgment. He has satisfied that judgment in His death. If we will believe Him, trust in Him alone, death can do nothing but usher us into the presence of our Savior. God is the Lord of death, and and as the Lord of death, God sends death to accomplish His purposes. With respect to the Christian, our physical death ultimately ushers us into the presence of our Savior. But listen, if you are not trusting Christ, death ushers you into what is only the beginning of the just judgment of God against you, and you can do nothing to avoid that second death, that eternity under the wrath of God. It's, it's not a happy message, but it's one that I've, I've got to tell you, I, I have no regret or fear in expressing to you this morning. Even those that as I look out, I, I don't recognize that I've never seen before. I don't know where your heart stands with God. But I want you to know That if you are trusting Christ, the resurrection is a certainty for you. And if you're not trusting in Christ, there's nothing you need to hear more desperately than this truth. You do not have to suffer the next death. But in Jesus Christ, you can be saved. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. This is true for us who are trusting Christ. He says, I tell you, brothers... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, 
Where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is the servant of God. It ushers his people into his presence, and it ushers his enemies into judgment. Where do you stand with God this morning? Do you belong to him? Are you trusting in Christ? What will your physical death mean? Life forever and resurrection from the grave into a glorified body? Or the judgment and wrath of God forever? It's real, and there's no turning back. When your life comes to an end, there will be no second chance. Second this morning, division, the children of God. Look at at how determined uh, Moses, the author of the book, is to to teach us about what Abraham does. It's it's the last faithful act of Abraham uh, to, to give tokens to his many sons who were not born to him of Sarah, who are not the sons of promise, to, to give them tokens and send them away and instead give everything, all of the blessing, the covenant promises to his son Isaac according to God's instruction. It's, it's not us reading into the text to understand that this sending away is pointing to that ultimate separation between the people of God and the people of the world. Moses gives us this hint when he tells us not, not merely that Abraham gave his son's tokens and sent them away, but that he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. He sent them away from his son Isaac. He makes a clear division between Isaac and all of the rest, and he sends them away to the east. It's, it's reminiscent that sending away to the east, and, and twice mentioned here, eastward to the east country, as though we are meant to recall Adam and Eve being cast from the garden to the east. Being sent away to the east is a, an image in the Old Testament of the judgment of God. They're sent away to the east. Ishmael. Uh, who's, who's really brought into the text this morning to wrap up his narrative. Uh, his death is, is out of order chronologically. Uh, he's, he's going to be alive for, for much of, of what we read in the chapters to come. Uh, we're told he, he lives to 137 years. So he's, he's clearly not dead when uh, we enter into verse 19 afterwards. But as we come to the end of his narrative here, look at how it... it ends his narrative. These are the last words with respect to Ishmael. He settled over against all his kinsmen. It's a violent expression, and it's a fulfillment of what was said of him earlier in Genesis, that that he would constantly be striving against the rest of the family. We see division here. And we, we end that narrative with Ishmael. So Abraham has died and Ishmael has died. And now it's as though we are starting a whole new part of the book of Genesis. 
And how could these two passages hold together? And yet, what do we see in these passages, these verses, but division? Rebecca is barren, and Isaac prays for her, and God is merciful and gracious, and she conceives, and there are two inside of her, and they struggle together within her. She can tell that these two, they're not getting along. They're getting started early on the sibling rivalry, beginning to wrestle and to fight and to push. Even as they're born, uh, we, we see Jacob hanging on to the heel of Esau. She goes to God and he is gracious and merciful to answer her question. Why? What is happening? And God says to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples Within, from within, you shall be divided. The one shall be, the, shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. There's a division here between Jacob and Esau. None of this should be surprising to us. If we go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, at the fall, as God begins to pronounce the curse, what does he say to the serpent in 3.15? I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, so that, that God immediately right there establishes for us that there are two kinds of people in the world. And it's not a genetic people in reality. It's a spiritual people. Because all of them are the offspring of Eve, genetically. And yet there are those who trust in Christ and those who do not. And we see that conflict begin right there in Genesis 4 as Cain murders Abel. There's a division in the world between those who are trusting in Christ and those who are not. That is, that is reality. It's actually the ultimate reality about the human race. And it's only those who are trusting in Christ that Scripture ever calls the children of God. And it uses the, the, the language children of Abraham synonymously with that language, children of God. God said from the beginning of the fall that there would be two kinds of people in the world, the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the serpents. It's been true so far in our narrative, and it will continue to be so. Cain and Abel, all the way up through Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. We know already it will be Jacob and not Esau because it says in God's response, the older shall serve the younger. Paul makes clear the truth of what's being taught here in Genesis. It is those who believe who are Abraham's children and therefore the children of the promise. In Romans 4, verses 1 through 12, Paul teaches us that Abraham is the father of all who believe. Not the father of all who are born in his line, but the father of all who believe. In Romans 9, Paul says, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel, remember Israel is not only a people, it's a person, Jacob, his name is changed to Israel. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it's not the children of the flesh 
Paul says, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. There's a division in the world. All of humanity is identified in one of two camps. It's been this way since Adam and Eve had their second child. It will continue this way forever. And those who are the children of God, those who are the offspring of Abraham, by faith, will spend an eternity together with God in perfection. That's the promise that God made to Abraham. And he keeps that promise to Abraham and all who are his offspring, spiritually speaking. You see, not everyone is a child of God, but only those who believe. Only those who believe belong to the covenant of promise granted to Abraham and are Abraham's children. Only Abraham's children will receive the blessing. Are you a child of the promise? Are you a child of Abraham, a child of God? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Are you living for him if you are? And what are we to make of this separation? this division of peoples. Those of us who are trusting Christ are called to be in the world, but not of it. We are holy. Scripture tells us that we are the holy ones, saints being just one way to translate the original languages there. And saints, contrary to the, the culture that has risen up in the Roman Catholic Church, saints are not the best of us. Saints are all of us who are trusting in Jesus Christ. What does it mean, though, to be holy? Does it mean that we are sinless? It does not. It expressly does not mean that. It means that we are set apart. You see this in the Old Testament narrative. What did God do with Abraham? He called him out. What did, did Abraham, what was his concern about Isaac? That Isaac would go home to find a wife and wouldn't come back that he would cease to be one who has been called out. Here, Abraham sends all of his children away to the east. Why? Because Isaac is holy. He is separate. He is other. He, and he alone, is the child of the promise, the one through whom the Messiah is coming. We are holy, brothers and sisters, called to be set apart for a purpose to serve God, not to share the world's values and beliefs, but instead to learn who we are, what we are called to, what is right and good and true according to God's very own character revealed in his word and his word alone. It's, it's difficult for us to keep this in mind. We go out into the world and these, these realities are largely invisible. You can't look at another person and just by looking at them recognize whether they are the offspring of Eve or the offspring of the serpent. The reality is you can know someone very intimately for many years and only have a sort of best guess. No one knows the heart of man but God alone. We are called to be in the world but not of it. We are called to pursue righteousness. This leads us into our last point this morning, discord 
the enmity of God, discord, the enmity of God. Uh, we only get two glimpses into the enmity that exists between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of Eve here in this passage. The first is Ishmael living against his brothers, and the other is the warfare in Rebekah's womb. Uh, you see, it's not just that there are ultimately only two kinds of people in the world. What Scripture teaches us is that these two peoples are at war with one another. And again, that warfare starts immediately. He says, I will put enmity between you. Not just a separation, but a discord between these two peoples in all of redemptive history. And we see that discord played out from Cain all the way up through Christ and into the book of Acts and into our own lives today. Unbelievers engage in that warfare by hating Christ and hating his people. And even if they can, murdering his people. That's what warfare looks like for the unbeliever. They hate Christ. They hate his people. And they will even kill his people if they can. And if your response to that, if your immediate thought was that seems extreme, uh, that seems paranoid, that is only because of where we live and the time in which we live. There are places in the world today that if it were to be known that you were a Christian, your life would be forfeit and your end would be violent. There have been times in history in all different parts of the world where this is true. It continues to be true today. It will continue to be true until Christ comes again and enters into the conflict in the most direct and personal way yet since the cross. And Revelation describes Christ coming into the world. Christ, who the world would like to think was a pretty nice guy, pretty good fella, right? Good teacher, wise man understood what love is, set a really good example for us. That Christ, John says in Revelation, will come trampling his enemies as grapes are trampled in a wine press, executing the wrath of God against his enemies and justice for himself and for his people. That's how this discord is coming to an end. And until that day, brothers and sisters, how are we who are in Christ to enter into that conflict. Jesus says, love your enemies and do not hate them. We enter into that conflict armed with the gospel. We enter into that conflict recognizing that the enemy is enslaved to their sin and to Satan and recognizing that the only means of freedom for them is the same way we ourselves found freedom, and that is in Jesus Christ. It's not freedom to be who you really are. Freedom to live as you would really rather live. The freedom that is ours in Christ is a freedom to follow hard after Him in righteousness. A freedom even in our failure to come to Him over and over again and confess that we are sinners in need of salvation and to rejoice in the grace and mercy and forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ. You see, this is one of the things that the world is really ultimately seeking freedom from, and that's their own sense of guilt. I don't care what anybody says to you. 
everyone wakes up in the middle of the night at some point and grimaces with the memory of what they've said. Deeply uh, regrets the thing they did. Modern psychology has a name for somebody who doesn't. They're, They're psychotic. I'm using it clinically. Everyone wants relief. Everyone knows the burden. And the world will seek relief by denying that they did anything wrong. By seeking to establish a standard of right and wrong that is theirs and theirs alone. By denying God. By insisting on their right to be themselves. To be true to themselves. And all of it is a flailing of a drowning person desperately hoping that they can keep their head above water. And there is only one rescue. To admit that you are a sinner. I mean, for, for just a moment, do you see how glorious that is? You don't have to deny what you know to be true. We are sinners in need of grace in need of mercy, in need of salvation and deliverance, to be lifted up out of the sin in which we are drowning, to be freed from the slavery that we we know is true in our sin. Only Jesus Christ. The discord is... It's easy to imagine that the enmity that exists in the world is very unfortunate. All the violence, all the hatred... The enmity is the means by which God is saving his people. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Enmity in the world is how God is saving his people. Brothers and sisters, if we are in Christ if we are trusting in Him, if we know this good news, if we ourselves have experienced that liberty, that freedom that can be found only in the gospel, then our weapon as we go out the door into the world to engage in that warfare is to love the world, our enemies, by telling them the good news, by telling them about Jesus Christ and the salvation that can be had only in Him. God is at work in the world and has been from the beginning through death, division, and discord. He is saving a people for himself. To whom do you belong? Do you belong to Eve or do you belong to the serpent? Do you belong to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob? Or are you among Ishmael and Esau? Do you belong to God or do you belong to the world? Those who are Abraham's spiritual offspring, trusting in Jesus Christ, for you, death has already been declared, already been defeated. We are called out from the world 
and we go to war armed with the gospel to take captive the servants of the enemy. If you, if you know this morning that you are not the offspring of Abraham, or if you are absolutely confused, if I have managed to sound for the last 45 minutes like the teacher on Charlie Brown, and you, you do not get any of this, listen, talk to me. Come to me immediately after the service. Talk to Nathan, the other guy in the black robe. Talk to anyone that you know here, that you know knows the answers to these questions. You desperately need Jesus Christ now. This afternoon is not even promised to you. Let's pray.